0: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
1: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at RightRug Flooring
3: Let's Talk About Myths, baby! And I am your host, Liv. Now, today is not a new episode. I'm sorry for that, but I'm in the midst of moving apartments and planning a very special epic month of episodes for March, and have half of my possessions at one apartment and the other half at the other apartment, including all my recording setup. It's a whole time. It's gonna be a month. Bear with me. But... This week, I have put together something very special. Um, For the course of a year, I covered all of the different Zodiac constellations, uh, the mythology associated with the Zodiac, and I did it episode by episode. Every time there was a new Zodiac sign in the stars, or however you phrase it, I covered that myth. So I thought, why not put them all into one episode? So this week's episode is all of the Zodiac Constellations in one. So these are previously recorded episodes, take note of that, but I've lined them all up perfectly so that you can listen back to back. This is episode 112, Zodiac Constellation Bonanza! Mini-Myth, Constellations, Orion and the Scorpion. There's a man by the name of Orion, and he is the son of Poseidon. He's famous for being an incredibly talented hunter and super fucking hot. Robert Graves describes him as the handsomest man alive. Orion is also the lover of Eos, who is a titan, and the personification of the dawn. Orion's skill in hunting comes from how fast and how light-footed he is. He can avoid being detected and move at incredible speeds. And not only that, but his father, Poseidon, also gave him the ability to walk on water. Dude is pretty fucking impressive. But so often in Greek mythology, an impressive dude is also an awful dude. Orion is traveling, and on the island of Chios. There, he drank far too much, which is, of course, not an excuse, but is provided as such in this book. And while crazy drunk, he rapes the princess of that island. Orion's punishment is to be blinded. Now, other versions of this story give the added details that the princess's name was Marope, which I'm pronouncing like in Harry Potter, but is probably more like Merope. And that her father, a name I'm not going to try to pronounce, is actually in love with her, and went to great lengths to keep Orion from marrying her. When Orion does get drunk and rape her, again, on excuse, this was when her father, in anger, blinded him. The point, though, is that he's blinded, and he does, in fact, leave Chios and Marope and her father. As a powerful man in ancient Greece, his punishment can't possibly last forever. Orion uses a local boy to help guide him east, and when the sun rises the next day, his blindness is cured. This is the work of Eos, Orion's lover, and the Dawn herself. Eos, it seems, is perhaps a little wrapped up in the patriarchal world in which she's forced to live, and so she doesn't think to herself, "'Hey, I bet I can do better than this asshole that rapes a girl, gets blinded for it, and then uses me to cure his blindness.'" Plenty of fish in the sea, as this awful dude's awful father would probably say. But now, Eos has cured Orion, and with his functional eyes, he travels to Crete. There he meets Artemis, who's impressed by his skill. She does love a good hunt, and so meeting someone who's nearly as good as her at it would obviously be a thrill. So the pair decide to go hunting together. The hunting that Orion and Artemis plan to do is to help the people of Crete. The shepherds and farmers are being plagued by beasts and monsters that are decimating their crops and wildlife. Orion and Artemis are there to help. And for a while, they're doing well. Orion particularly so. But of course he's one of those guys, and so this success begins to go to Orion's head. He starts to brag He walks around telling anyone who will listen that there's no beast in the world that he can't kill with his spear or his arrows. Why does anyone ever brag like that in ancient Greece? It's just never, ever a good idea. Zeus hears Orion's boasting and is angry. There's nothing specifically here that would anchor Zeus, but it seems he just likes ego, epically ironic as that may be. He doesn't like when people are showy, especially when he can easily test their showiness, which is exactly what he does. Zeus decides to test this man who was oh so high on himself, and so he sends down to earth a giant scorpion. And this is where I question everything I said in the most recent Patreon episode where i discussed clash of the titans and went on quite the rant about why would there be giant scorpions in this world and anyway i was wrong zeus sends down a giant scorpion again another version of this story suggests that it's actually apollo who sends the scorpion down to orion In that version, Orion is a threat to Artemis. Apollo believes he will seduce his sister with his skill in hunting, and that she may have the same fate as Merope. In a fit of brotherly love, Apollo sends the scorpion to do away with Orion. In either case, a massive scorpion is not at all what Orion was expecting as he travels to the Greek countryside, killing creatures of a normal size. Shockingly, he's no match for this monster sent down by Zeus, All it takes is a single flick of the scorpion's poisonous, stingy tail before Orion has been killed. Yet again, there's another version of this that suggests that Apollo actually tricks Artemis into killing Orion herself. He convinces her that she's shooting a man who's just seduced one of Artemis' priestesses, so naturally she would wish to punish him. In this confusion, she shoots an arrow which hits Orion in the head, killing him immediately. In both cases, though, Orion has been killed, and has attempted to fight a scorpion. So he's placed in the sky as a constellation, being perpetually pursued by the scorpion. And he, Orion, is perpetually pursuing the Pleiades, nymphs devoted to Artemis, who, we're told, Orion had lusted after his entire life. These women were placed in the sky as stars after seven years of being endlessly chased and lusted after by our friend Orion. How often is a woman transformed into something she probably doesn't want to be just so she can escape a horny and awful man? And after all that, in the end, he's placed up there with them. They can never get away from old Orion, a classy, classy man living up in the stars forever, famous mostly for his belt, which doesn't actually play into this story. mini myth zodiac constellations chiron trainer to the stars sagittarius the centaur chiron is an ancient soul while some say that he is in fact one of the centaurs brought about by the story of ixion and nephaly that i told so recently the more well-known and more likely story is that chiron is actually the son of none other than the castrator in chief Cronus. On the island of Phileira, Cronus met up with a woman, also named Phileira. She's the daughter of Oceanus, and so she's a Nereid, and just as ancient as Cronus himself. On that island, they have sex, obviously, because this is Greek mythology. But they're interrupted by Rhea, Cronus's wife. Surprised by Rhea, Cronus transforms himself into a stallion and gallops away. The whole family of these men all appear to be very mature and adult about their bullshit. You know, don't face what's just happened, transform yourself into a horse, and run away. Because that'll never come back to bite you. Anyway, that's exactly what Cronus does, and so as a result, not only is Philera left pregnant by him, but she gives birth to Chiron, a centaur. She's so disturbed by this child that she abandons him. The women aren't always the heroes here, you know. But... Chiron is not your average centaur. While the most common ideal of these fellows is the body of a horse with the top half of a man in place of the horse's neck and head, Chiron is depicted differently. In almost all ancient Greek pottery and art, Chiron is actually depicted as having the full form of a man, with the back half of a horse simply protruding off his back. It's quite freakish, actually, but it means you can usually pick out Chiron out of the other centaurs, so ultimately it's quite helpful. This is also why it's most likely that Chiron is the son of Cronos and Phileera, because otherwise, one would think he would look like the other centaurs. Also unlike the other centaurs, he isn't a violent lunatic. Chiron is wise. Before Asclepius is the god of medicine, it's Chiron who's known for his skill in healing. Chiron lives on Mount Pelion in a cave with his wife, the nymph Chericlo. They have a number of children, though the most important is their daughter, Andias. Andias goes on to marry Aeacus and becomes the mother of Peleus, making Chiron the grandfather of Achilles himself. In that cave, alongside his wife Chericlo, who is, not surprisingly, almost never mentioned at all, Chiron goes on to train so many of the best and most famous heroes from Greek myth lovers of Song of Achilles will remember that cave and Chiron's teaching quite fondly. From a young age, after he's so unceremoniously abandoned by his mother, Chiron is taught by Apollo, who acts as a kind of father figure to the centaur. This is how he learns his skills in medicine and herbs, but also music, archery, hunting, and importantly, prophecy. Chiron becomes so skilled in medicine and herbs that he's credited with the discovery of pharmacy and botany. He's the father of medicine, and it's Chiron who teaches it to Asclepius himself. Of course, it's not just Asclepius who's tutored by old Chiron. As you'll remember from their stories, Chiron is the teacher and mentor of so many heroes. Achilles, Aeneas, Theseus, Jason, Perseus, the man taught them all. He's also the inspiration for the character of Philoctetes, Phil, in Disney's Hercules. While Phil is a satyr and not a centaur, the implication is obvious. Chiron is the most distinguished version of Phil's character, much less the comic relief that comes with casting Danny DeVito. But in the end, Chiron is cursed by his immortality. During one of Heracles' labors, when he set out to defeat the Arimanthian boar, he rests on Mount Arimanthus. There, Heracles stays with another centaur, Pholus, who's the only other one vaguely like Chiron. He, too, is not a rapey lunatic, and so he houses Heracles. But other centaurs, the bad ones, become attracted to the smell of the wine that Heracles drinks with Pholus. Heracles defends himself against the crazy pack of centaurs and pursues them. While they're running from Heracles, they shelter in Chiron's cave. He takes them in as a fellow centaur-ish character, as he doesn't know what or who they're running from. When Heracles finds them, he attacks. He has with him a bow with arrows tipped with poison. As he's attacking these other centaurs, Chiron is hit by an arrow. The poison courses through his body, but he doesn't die. He's immortal, unlike the rest, as he's the son of Cronus and Philera. So instead of death, the wise and noble Chiron is tormented. Pain shoots through him, unending and unimaginable pain. Without the resulting death he so wishes he could have. Finally, after Heracles frees Prometheus from his centuries of torment, Prometheus takes from Chiron his immortality, taking with it the excruciating pain of the poison, and Chiron is gifted with death. Prometheus once again finds himself the savior of the innocent. Chiron, so beloved by the heroes he mentored and so revered for his skills in healing, is placed in the stars as a constellation the archer, the centaur, Sagittarius. On the next mini myth, his most influential protege, Asclepius. Mini myth. Zodiac constellations, Capricorn, who is really just a sea goat. Today's constellation myth brings us way, way back. Back to before Zeus overthrew his father, Cronos. The Titan, Cronos, is famous for castrating his own father as a means of defeating him and tossing the leftover bits into the sea. It was, you remember, very pleasant and lovely. After this, Kronos learned that he, too, was destined to be overthrown by one of his children, just as he had done to his father, Uranus. But unlike his father, Kronos didn't intend to go quietly. So to solve this problem of having to wait patiently to be inevitably overthrown by his own child, Kronos decided it would be simple. He just wouldn't let any of his children survive. Easy peasy. Of course, one might think another solution could have been, don't have children, But Greek gods do love sex, and it seems there wasn't really any mythological means of birth control, so that wasn't an option. Instead, Cronus decided he would just eat each of his children as soon as they'd been birthed by his wife and sister, Rhea. And so, Rhea gave birth first to Hestia, and Cronus ate her. Yum, yum, yum. Next, Demeter and Hera, both of whom he gobbled down happily. Then Hades, then Poseidon, all eaten. Finally, Rhea was getting a little bit annoyed. Not exactly sure why it took her five children being eaten before she became a little perturbed, but there you have it. Finally, she was over it. And so, when she gave birth to Zeus next, she didn't pass him over to her husband to be eaten as she had with all her other children. No, this time she tricked him. She gave him a rock to eat in place of the baby, which he swallowed in one bite. Finishing it off with a chef's kiss, I like to imagine. Meanwhile, Rhea took Zeus down to Earth, and she placed him in a cave on Crete, where he'd be looked after by a goat, who appears to also be a nymph in some way, and anthropomorphized in some other way, and her name is Amalthea. Through the nurturing of Amalthea, Zeus grew up to be the strong-willed jackass that we know and love-slash-hate, and eventually went on to defeat his father and free his siblings from Kronos' apparently very hospitable stomach. And, in the end, Zeus was so grateful for the love and care of Amalthea that he placed her in the stars as the goat constellation, Capricorn. That is the story I was able to find that fully explains how Capricorn got into the sky. However, most imagery of the constellation and most references after call it the sea goat, that is, a half goat and half fish. The story of Amalthea doesn't really account for the sea goat aspect, unless you think that's the nymph part of her, but I'm not convinced. There are also many stories that note a god by the name of Pricus, who was indeed the king of the so-called sea goats, a race of half goat, half fish creatures, who lived in the sea near the shore, and were able to also travel on land where they turned into regular goats. Pricus, it appears, was connected to Kronos, the one with the CH, the one that's the god of time. However, that story, of Pricus I could only find on a couple of websites that appeared to only use each other as sources, Wikipedia included. So instead, I went with the Amalthea version, because that actually appears in books that were, you know, researched through actual mythology. That's not to say Pricus isn't found in a myth, but I couldn't find him, and I have a hell of a lot of books on mythology. If any of you can find a reputable mythological text that references Pricus and the seagoats, please send it my way, because boy, do seagoats sound interesting. Regardless of the origin of Capricorn, though, the Horn of Plenty, the Cornucopia, certainly comes into play. One of the horns of the seagoat, that is Capricorn, was transformed into the Horn of Plenty, which is always filled with all the food and drinks its possessor could ever want or need. It sounds appropriate for the holiday season. Mini-Myth, Zodiac Constellations, Aquarius and Pisces, or Cups and Fishes. Long before the Trojan War, there is a king of Troy named, well, Tros, which is where Troy got its name in the first place. Tros had a son, a prince of Troy. This boy, he's quite young, you see, is fucking beautiful, like the hottest guy around, Kind of how people are currently reacting to that Shawn Mendez ad. But I digress. The son of Tros, the hottest of the hot, is named Ganymede. Zeus, up on Mount Olympus, notices Ganymede down on Earth. Now Zeus loves an attractive person, typically women, but here he makes an exception. The Olympians are nothing if not open-minded. Zeus notices Ganymede and is immediately taken with him. As we all know so well zeus takes what he wants so he transforms himself into an eagle as you do and flies down to troy zeus finds ganymede picks him up in his talons and flies back up to mount olympus some say ganymede was taken up to olympus simply to be the cupbearer to the gods others say it was because zeus wanted him sexually translation zeus wanted to rape him and the role of cupbearer was simply a result of him now being on mount olympus Of course, with what we know about Zeus, I think it's pretty damn likely that Ganymede was abducted for sex. I mean, did Zeus do anything that wasn't ultimately about sex and rape with a mortal? I don't think so. It's also pretty telling that the one man Zeus abducts to, presumably, rape, gets to then live on Mount Olympus and be the official cupbearer to the gods. Ganymede is even made immortal. So the zillion women Zeus also kidnapped in order to rape get zilch for their experiences, but this dude gets immortality in a lifetime amongst the gods. I mean, sure, he probably still would have preferred to go home to his family, where he was a prince anyway, but still. Patriarchy and whatnot, you know the drill. In the end, Zeus still had to deal with the wrath of Hera, even though Ganymede was a man, and so in order to finally alleviate the anger and hatred of his wife... Zeus places Ganymede amongst the stars as the constellation the water-bearer, or cup-bearer, Aquarius. And in return for having his son so unceremoniously kidnapped to be installed as Zeus's sex-slave and cup-bearer, Tros, Ganymede's father, is given a golden vine and some horses. A fine trade, to be sure. So that was Aquarius, which, thankfully, contains an actual story to be told, Sadly, Pisces is not so lucky. It's more in the realm of Capricorn, and even more vague than that, hence this combo episode. According to one version of the telling, way, way back when Aphrodite was born from the fresh castration foam, she was helped to shore by two brothers, Aphros and Bithos. Some say they're half-brothers of Chiron himself, and their relation in physicality will soon become clear. You see, Aphros and Bithos are ichthyocentours. What is an ichthyocentor, aside from some kind of word soup, you might ask? Well, (laughs) let me tell you. Aphros and Bithos, these Ichthyocentaurs, have the top halves of men, the middle section of horses, just like your standard centaur, but then, rather than horses, back legs, and tails, they were fish. Yep, fish. Oh, also they had these little crab pinchers sticking out of their people foreheads. Greek mythology, am I right? It's possible that Aphros became some sort of foster father figure to Aphrodite, hence the similarities in their names, but this story doesn't appear in many sources. Like, I use theoi.com, which references their source as Hyginus' Fabulae, which of course is a book I've been trying to find and haven't been able to get a copy of yet all to say these stories are few and far between. Interestingly, the concept of these ichthyocentaur brothers is most often found in imagery. Yes, that's right, there's pics. And so, in this version, these twin brother ichthyocentaurs are placed in the sky as the constellation Pisces. Fishy fish. Another version of the story behind Pisces comes from a book of constellation myths, The copy I have is sort of a compilation, it seems, of a bunch of things, including writing from Eratosthenes and Hyginus as well, but they have a different telling of the constellation myths. This is all very confusing. I am trying to make it clear for you guys, but who's to say? For this version, we're traveling to Mesopotamia. This version says that Aphrodite and Eros traveled to Mesopotamia where they sat on the banks of the Euphrates. They were sitting by the river, minding their own damn business, when the monster Typhon appeared. You remember Typhon, the monster to shame all monsters. He was enormous and had a collection of heads. Lots of snakes going on. It's a whole thing. So Typhon appears and, quite unsurprisingly, scares the living shit out of Aphrodite and Eros. In order to escape, the two jump into the Euphrates and transform themselves into fishies. It's even said that the people of Mesopotamia at that time stopped eating fish of any sort out of fear they would accidentally consume Aphrodite and Eros. In this version, though, which is, of course, coming from Mesopotamia itself, Aphrodite is actually being conflated with either the goddess Ashtart, which is the Greek name for Ishtar, or Dukerto, which is the Greek name for Atargatis, both Mesopotamian goddesses. Due to the proximity of these ancient cultures, often stories would travel between them, taking on the names and personalities of similar gods and goddesses in each of the cultures, which is fucking fascinating. It happened a lot with Egypt, too. Now, sadly, I don't know that much about Mesopotamian mythology, so I'm simply retelling some of the things I've just read about these goddesses, so don't quote me on it. But since the story did originate in that region, I wanted to make sure I at least made an attempt at referencing the originating mythology. I'm also sure I butchered the pronunciations because I have a hard enough time with the Greek, and I studied them for four years. Mini-Myth. Zodiac constellations. Definitely not overreacting. Ares, the golden ram. Where and when our story takes place is Boeotia, during the rule of Athamas which is a name that sounds more like something from Tolkien than Greek mythology, and I'm totally okay with that. Athamas is the ruler of Boeotia, and brother of our old friends Sisyphus and Salmonius. So, you know, take from that what you will. Athamas's wife is Nephili, though theirs is not true love. It was Hera who instructed the marriage of Athamas and the personified cloud that Zeus created to fuck with Ixion. For more details on that, make sure you've listened to my Ixion mini-myth. It's a real thrill ride. So Athamas and Nephele are married, and together they have two sons, Phrixus and Leucon, as well as a daughter, Heli. But a happy marriage it is not. Weird, I mean, you'd think when a goddess forces you to marry, you're gonna have a happily ever after, but no. It seems Nefeli is just not into her husband. In fact, she dislikes him pretty greatly. Athamas, meanwhile, resents being hated by his wife. It's a whole thing. These people are not happy together. And what can sometimes happen when a couple isn't happy? Bingo. Adultery. Athamas ends up meeting another woman and falling in love with her. This woman is Aino, daughter of one of my two all-time favorite couples, Cadmus and Harmonia of Thebes. Athamas and Ino begin meeting up secretly. He brings her to his palace at the foot of a mountain where they, you know, do what people do when they're having affairs. And bam, Athamas now has two more children, this time with Ino. They are Lyarchus and Melicertes. But subtle, these two were not. Nephili hears about Athamas' indiscretions from the servants at the palace, and while she doesn't particularly like her husband, she also doesn't want him fucking other women, so she's pissed. God, you guys, this is such a healthy relationship. Nephili is infuriated when she learns that not only has Athamas been carrying on this affair with Aino, but now they have two sons? <sighs> so she goes to see Hera, the woman who forced her to marry this dude in the first place. Nephili rants and raves at Hera about how Athamas has behaved, and, well, as you might expect, Hera is pretty well-versed in situations such as these, and she sides with Nephili. She has been there, and been there, and been there, and, well, you get it. Hera, in her anger at Athamas on behalf of Nephili, vows that she will personally ensure that Athamas and his house have some swift vengeance brought down on them. Always something you want. The most frequently cheated on goddess pissed at you for cheating. I mean, she can't really take her anger out on her own husband, he's an asshole and the king of the gods, so you can imagine the anger she's directing at Athamas right now isn't all on behalf of Nephili. It's also probably a lot of Hera's own pent-up fury at Zeus. A bad combo, to say the least. With Hera on her side, Nephili returns home to her husband and lets him know that the goddess is out to get him. I bet she loved having that conversation, too. I mean, confronting your husband for cheating and getting to tell him that you've told on him to the goddess of marriage and she's going to rain eternal godly vengeance on him for it? So satisfying. Armed with this information, Nephile orders the men of Boeotia to kill Athamas, lest they instead have to wrestle with Hera's fury. But the men of Boeotia don't think little old Hera can do much damage. That's right, they side with the man over the goddess. Can't say I'm surprised by this, but honestly sometimes it gets so tiring seeing these examples of patriarchal bullshit. I mean, you can always assume a goddess is going to do more damage to you than a human male, she's a goddess. So the men of Boeotia aren't willing to kill their king, and the women of Boeotia, it turns out, are big fans of Aino, and more than happy to pick her over Nephili, leaving our cloud woman at a bit of a loss. Aino, meanwhile, is plotting. She convinces the women of Boeotia to fuck with the harvest. Something about parching seed corn, which makes absolutely no sense to me because, as I've had to say a weird number of times in this podcast, I'm not a farmer. Anyway, they fuck with it is what matters. They fuck with the harvest, ensuring that it will fail. And when it fail, Athamas will have to seek the guidance of our wonderful, incredible, maniacal Oracle. But this is not a story of the Oracle, unfortunately. You see, Ino had also plotted with some of Athamas' servants, ensuring that they would bring back a fake answer from the Oracle. They would tell him that the oracle had advised that the only way to bring back the fertility of the earth of Boeotia is to sacrifice Athamas's son with Nephili, Phrixus. So, you know, this is all going super well, and definitely there's nobody who's overreacting, and it's definitely not everyone. Athamas agrees to sacrifice his son. Again, no one is overreacting at all. Athamas' men bring Phrixus up to the nearby mountain where the sacrifice will take place. They get there, and Athamas, while sobbing heavily, has the knife to his son's own neck. When Heracles rushes in. That's right, you heard me. It's time for a cameo by everyone's favorite Disney character. Heracles just happened to be in the neighborhood, as one does, and he rushes in at the last moment, grabbing onto Athamas's hand just as he's about to drive the knife into his own son's neck. (gasps) Wait, Heracles calls. My father, he has to name drop, you know, hates human sacrifices. Don't do it. Except this doesn't actually do much and Athamas is still about to go through with it when a fucking golden ram sent by Hera shows up and whisks Phrixus away on his back. But not before Phrixus's sister, Heli, calls out asking to be brought with them. She doesn't feel like hanging around with her father who is about to sacrifice Phrixus. Seriously, guys, it's moments like these when I just think... God, I fucking love these people and their batshit stories. Why the fuck is Heracles there? How is it that he's not actually the one that saves Phrixus? How is it a golden fucking ram? Why is it gold? So many questions. Music. Phrixus and Heli are flying off on this golden ram. What a weird fucking sentence. They make their way to Colchis. But before they can make it, the silly woman, Heli, loses her grip on the ram's back and falls off, just as they're above the straits between Europe and Asia. This version I'm reading says she was giddy, and that's why. Which sounds like some sexist bullshit, but regardless, she falls, and so the strait is named after her, the Hellespont, which is what we now call the Dardanelles. There is literally no other mention of Helly. No one being sad or mourning at all, just, she fell, k bye. Anyway, Phrixus, in all his not caring about his sister's death, reaches Colchis, and there he sacrifices the golden ram to Zeus, who puts the ram into the night sky as the constellation of, you guessed it, Ares. Now, some say the ram wasn't sent by Hera, or it was, but it had its origins with Poseidon. A version tells that Poseidon wanted to have sex with a nymph, Theophany, granddaughter of Helios, the Sun God, and Titan. It seems Theophany has many suitors, though, so in order to have his way, Poseidon transforms himself into a ram, and Theophany into a ewe, so they can fuck amongst the flocks, unnoticed by all the other men looking to marry Theophany. Ah, the lengths the gods will go to. But all to say, apparently their child together was this, the Golden Ram, now the constellation Ares. Phrixus settles in Colchis, becoming part of the house of Aetes, the son of Helios. Many of you will know him as the not-so-great brother of Circe. The fleece from the golden ram, which remained once the ram himself is put up into the stars, becomes famous once more, later on when Medea's husband goes in search of his golden fleece with his famous Argonauts. But that's another story that, well, I've already told. Meanwhile, back on the mountain where Phrixus was about to be sacrificed, everyone who was left there was, to say the absolute least, a bit shocked. They took this rescue by a mysterious golden ram as proof that they'd been wrong, and the men who had presented the fake oracle proclamation tell the truth, explaining how Aino had bribed them to do it. Nephili, hearing this, once again calls for her husband to be killed. And again, he's just about to be sacrificed when our old pal Heracles once again is all, guys, what did I just say? My father, Zeus, doesn't like human sacrifices. So then they don't, and Athamas gets to live. Athamas's story isn't over, but this episode is, because it's Game of Thrones Day, and I have so much I need to refresh my memory on, and this is a mini-myth after all. And we'll finish Athamas's story another time.
4: At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: Mini myth, zodiac constellations, Europa, Zeus, and his bullshit, Taurus. Taurus, it seems, is a constellation with endless associated mythology, and so much of it not Greek at all. As for the Greek, though, while there are so many bulls from so many myths that could and might be interpreted as that of Taurus, the general consensus is it's one of the following two. Agenor, still don't know how to pronounce that one, and Queen Telephassa of Phoenicia, now Lebanon, have a number of children. The two we care about, though, are Europa and Cadmus. One day, Zeus, in all his creepy old man glory, spots Europa. As is Zeus's way, he sees this young girl and decides he must have her truly, Zeus, you are a predator. Zeus decides he must have Europa, and so he begins to plan how it can happen. The king has cattle, you see, and Zeus does love a good transformation. He decides he will send his own son, Hermes, our favorite trickster and messenger god, to drive the king's cattle toward the beach. Hermes does this, he doesn't ever turn down an order from Zeus, and when the cattle are on the beach, the beach where Europa and some of her friends just happen to be spending their day, Zeus joins them. Zeus transforms himself into a white bull, a majestic, stunning, practically glowing in its wonder, white bull. He mingles with the other cattle, but this beautiful white bull stands out. He stands out and he catches the eye of Europa. It's not hard to... Such beautiful white fur in the sparkling sunlight next to the brilliant blue Mediterranean. It's picturesque, damn it. Europa is intrigued by this interesting bull, and she wants to pet him. She leaves her group of friends and cautiously approaches the bull. Now, I don't have any experience with bulls, but honestly, this seems sketchy to me, no matter how pretty and cute he might be. In any event, Europa's ballsy, or perhaps just very naive, she approaches the bull. But he's friendly. He takes her pets, and in his cute bull way, he just encourages her more. The mysterious bull is receptive to her. She begins to play with him. She puts a garland of flowers around his head and gives him lots of nice ear scratches. Europa is so intrigued by this bull, and the bull seems so lovely and docile... That she climbs onto his back, letting him walk her down towards the water. But when the bull reaches the water, he doesn't stop like Europa expects. The bull just keeps walking into the water, Europa still clinging to his back, and she starts to worry. The bull wades into the sea until he can't wade any anymore, and then he swims. Europa, having absolutely no fucking clue how to get out of this one, panics and just holds on tightly to the bull's neck as he swims off into the sea. Finally, after hours of swimming, the bull finally finds land and Europa, if just for a second, feels like she can breathe again. The bull wades ashore with Europa still on his back, on the island of Crete. Once they're on dry land, Europa leaps off the bull and the bull transforms! Well, not back into Zeus. No, for some creepy reason. In this version, Zeus transforms from a bull into an eagle? And yeah, as an eagle, the myth tells us, he rapes Europa next to a spring. Nice they give us these lovely details, isn't it? Anyway, I just also want to say that so many sources use the word ravish when they mean rape, and it's pretty gross. I guess I understand that you don't want your book of myths to be 60% the word rape, but there should be a better way of sugarcoating it without, well, sugarcoating it quite like this. So in the form of an eagle, the logistics for which I will not try to understand, Zeus rapes Europa, and together they have three children. Minos, Rhadamanthus, and Sarpedon. These men are not triplets, so we're to believe Zeus and Europa were together at least three times, which I mean is something new and different for Zeus, I guess. Rare, he has more than one rando child with a woman, so there you go. Eventually, though, Zeus leaves Europa on Crete, and the bull form he'd taken to kidnap her is placed in the stars as the constellation Taurus, and one of their sons, Minos, grows up to be the king we all know so well, the one who is married to Pasiphae. Some say that it was not the bull form of Zeus that becomes the constellation Taurus, that instead, it's another bull associated with the island of Crete. Queen Pasiphae, wife of Minos, neglected her worship of Aphrodite. For years, the daughter of Helios, sister of Circe herself, neglects to make offerings to the goddess of love, and don't we all know what to expect when the gods are not appeased? Aphrodite grows angry with Pasiphae, and surprise, surprise, seeks to punish her for not worshipping as she should. Her punishment? Aphrodite causes Pasiphae to fall in love, not with her husband, not even with another man. Aphrodite causes Pasiphae to fall in love with a bull. Pasiphae and Minos employ a man named Daedalus, or in some versions, he's their captive more than their employee. Regardless, Pasiphae has the power to instruct the great inventor Daedalus to make her whatever she wants. And because of Aphrodite, Pasiphae wants a means of having sex with the bull she's fallen so hard for. Mm Mm-hmm, yes, you heard me. So, on Pasiphae's very bizarre and quite concerning instruction, Daedalus builds her, for lack of a better word, a contraption. He builds a wooden cow. Yes, a wooden cow. It's hollow, you see. Yes, hollow. It's a hollow wooden cow that he covers in real cow skin. Yes, a hollow wooden cow covered in real cow skin, and therefore, real cow scent. It's a hollow wooden cow covered in real cow scent that, when finished, Daedalus places strategically in view of the bull Pasiphae loves so dearly. And, well, Pasiphae climbs on in. Pacife climbs on in to this hollow wooden cow covered in real cow scent and positions herself in a position? And I mean, how can one describe what Pacife intends to do? She fucks the bull while hiding in a hollow wooden cow and let me tell you this is one of the reasons I started this podcast because I just want to talk about instances like this. How did they come up with this idea? Why did they come up with this idea? Were people regularly lusting after bulls? Did they want that in some way? Was this aspirational? Or was it viewed as something to be aboard? If it was something to be aboard, why tell such a detailed story? All great questions I would really love answers to. So Pacife fucks this bull, and guess what? She gets pregnant. That's right, pregnant. Pacife gets pregnant, and in time, she gives birth to a healthy baby. Well, a healthy baby that she names Asterion. The only thing about Asterion is that, well, he's only half human. Bottom half human, top half bull. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is the Minotaur. And sure, we all know the Minotaur, but what I really want us considering is what he must have looked like as a baby. What a story. Also, go read Cersei. Anyway, the bull, the passive pay fucked, is eventually killed by Heracles as one of his twelve labors, and placed in the sky as the constellation Taurus. All to say, you Tauruses out there, you have some great options for the myth your Zodiac Constellation is based on. Not disturbing at all. Mini-Myth Zodiac Constellations Swans, Eggs, and the Twins, Castor, and Polydoces Gemini The story of the Twins of Gemini begin with a story you know from past episodes. In fact, I likely mentioned these two in passing, knowing that I get to their story in detail sometime in the future. Well, the future is now. God, that was cheesy. You don't always have to say the things that pop into your head. Live. Castor and Polydeuces are children of Leda. You remember Leda of fucking a swan, fame. Leda is the wife of King Tyndareus of Sparta. The story goes that Zeus, appearing in the form of a swan, seduces Leda. We all know that's code, though. Whether she consensually had sex with a swan is not clear, but I'm willing to bet it wasn't wholly consensual because that's fucking weird. But hey, maybe Leda had a really freaky kink and we shouldn't judge her, it's just too hard to say. Regardless, one day Zeus appears to her as a swan and they have sex. They have sex, though, on the same day that she has sex with her own husband, Tyndarius, and the story goes that this was the reason she's impregnated by both men at the same time. I'm not sure the Greeks had the science entirely figured out by this point. When Leda finally gives birth, she births four children. Two the children of Zeus, making them godly. And two the children of Tyndareus, making them boring old mortals. But wait, by birth, in this case, I don't mean like the regular women do. No, no. Leda fucking lays eggs. Sometimes just the one egg from Zeus with the other kids born like normal, and sometimes two eggs. Either way, eggs, you guys. She lays eggs. But somehow, that's not the most important part of the story. Let's be honest, though, it should be. Anyway, the most important part of the story is the children who are either birthed like normal or hatch from the fucking eggs. Because, yeah... Human babies hatch from the eggs. What a world. We all know already, but it's moments like this where I realize why I started the podcast. Eggs. Two of her children you already know so well. Her daughters, Clytemnestra and Helen. Clytemnestra, who goes on to marry Agamemnon and have his children, who eventually teams up with her new lover, her husband's arch-enemy, Aegisthus, to kill her own husband. She's famous in her own right and Helen. Oh, Helen. She who, whether by any fault of her own or not, contributes to the start of the most epic and famous war of Greek mythology and kind of the world. But this story isn't about these insane and badass sisters. It's about their brothers. Because of who one of the fathers is, two of the children are typically described as immortal, godly in some way. But who is mortal and who isn't? That varies greatly. So if you're interested, consider subscribing to my Patreon, because I'm definitely doing an episode about these folks. Their stories are endless. In the version I'm telling today, though, Castor and Clytemnestra are mortal. They're the children of Tyndareus, and it's Polydeuces and Helen who are godly, the children of Zeus. All the same, the twins themselves, Castor and Polydeuces, are often referred to as sons of Zeus. Plus, they're twins, so who knows how it could work that they have different fathers. But again, they just didn't have the science down yet. Together, these boys are referred to as the Dioscori, the striplings of Zeus. The twins, like their sisters, were around just before the Trojan War. But unlike Clytemnestra and Helen, their stories intertwine with those of other famous heroes and quests. Castor and Polydeuces helped in the Caledonian boar hunt with Jason and the other Argonauts, as well as the quest for the Golden Fleece. And think back to one of those earliest episodes of this podcast where I told you about how awful Theseus was. It's her brothers, Castor and Polydeuces, who rescue Helen when Theseus kidnaps her. But that's just their early lives. The true trouble comes later. There's another set of twins, far less famous than the Dioscuri, but twins all the same. Their names are Idas and Lincius, and they're cousins of Castor and Polydeuces. But I won't get into the family tree, because it's confusing as fuck. If for some strange reason you want to know and understand it and learn a fuck-ton of names you'll never need again, you can read about them in Robert Graves' Greek mythology. Right now, though. All you need to know is these other twins, Idas and Lyncius, are set to marry two sisters, Phoebe and Hilaera. But before they can, along come the Dioscuri, Castor, and Polydeuces. They also take a liking to these women, and they kidnap them. Something, again, often phrased as carrying them off, which is a gross and weird way of saying kidnap. Castor and Polydeuces kidnap Phoebe and Hylera, and, one might suppose, rape them, because we're told the women give birth to sons of Castor and Polydeuces. As one might imagine, the men originally meant to marry Phoebe and Hylera, Idas and Lyncius, are not thrilled that their wives-to-be have been kidnapped by the Dioscori, and have already had children by them. And so, A rivalry forms between these two sets of twins. Meanwhile, Castor and Polydeuces continue on with their lives. It's not clear whether they stayed with Phoebe and Hilera. Sadly, it doesn't seem like it's relevant other than to establish this rivalry between the Dioscori and Idas and Lynceus. Ah, how important women were. Castor becomes a famous soldier, known for his skill in taming horses. And Polydeuces is the best boxer in all of Greece. They're the pride of Sparta, the golden children of the whole region, and they do nothing alone. The Dioscori are always together. Idas and Lincius are equally connected to each other, though not nearly as famous. How the two sets of twins get to this next point is confusing and varies greatly and in a not at all interesting way across the versions of the story. So all to say... There reaches a point in this rivalry where the two sets of twins are fighting one another. A version says that in this fighting, Polydeuces stabs Lynceus and Zeus strikes Idas with a thunderbolt, but not before Castor himself has been stabbed. Remember, it's only Polydeuces who's immortal. Polydeuces is absolutely inconsolable. He and his brother were closer than Anyone can understand, and he cannot handle even the notion that he doesn't have his brother anymore. Yet there he is, holding the lifeless body of Castor. Zeus is watching, having struck Idas with the thunderbolt in an attempt to help his son, Polydeuces, and he pities the man, sobbing over his beloved brother's body. So Zeus allows Polydeuces to share some of his godly immortality with his mortal brother. In exchange, with Castor restored to a kind of half-life, the twins will live half of their time beneath the Earth in the Underworld, and half with the gods on Mount Olympus. It's said that because of their devotion to each other, Zeus places them in the sky as the constellation Gemini. I don't know when this happens, because I thought they were living between the two places, but at some point, Zeus places them in the sky as the constellation Gemini. The twins. mini-myth, Zodiac Constellations. Have you Herod the one about the lion and the crab? Cancer and Leo. Hera. Oh, Hera. You're good for puns. First, everyone, think back to those early episodes when I covered Heracles, better known as Hercules, zero to hero, just like that. Heracles is the son of Zeus and Alcmene one of the many children he had with mortal women that were not his wife Hera, but without a doubt, the one that caused her the most anger, and the one she most wanted to ruin. See, Hera, well, Hera tried every way imaginable to fuck shit up for Heracles. She was not happy that he existed and wanted his stupid demigod life ruined. More so than any other of Zeus's children. He was her nemesis. One of the many things Hera inflicted upon Heracles was influencing Eurystheus to assign him his labors. Heracles required purification, and he sought it from Eurystheus. Eurystheus had some work for Heracles to do. Epic tasks to complete, monsters to kill, the labors were wide-reaching. I covered them in my Heracles story, so if you want to hear the full thing, go there. But also this. During one of these famous labors, the number of which tends to vary depending on your sources, usually it's twelve, Heracles is sent to kill the Larnian Hydra. Oh, the Hydra. By far one of my favorite monsters of mythology, second only to the pair, Scylla and Charybdis. The Hydra was born of Typhon and Echidna, the monsters that sired most of Greek mythology's most terrifying creatures. But the Hydra wasn't raised by its parents. Monsters like that aren't particularly parental. No, the Hydra was raised by none other than Hera. Raised by Hera for the specific purpose of fucking with Heracles. The Hydra has an enormous dog-like body and a whole slew of serpentine heads. Eight or nine, they say. But of course, the thing about the Hydra that makes it special is that when one head is cut off... Two more grow in its place. So, before long, Heracles is dealing with quite the monstrosity. But it's not just the Hydra he has to kill that day, no. While Heracles is working to defeat the Hydra, Hera sends another beast to distract him to give the Hydra the upper hand. Hera sends a giant crab. A giant crab that Heracles kills in about four seconds. I'm not kidding. One source, Apollodorus, explains that this enormous crab showed up to help the Hydra. It bit Heracles' foot, and so Heracles killed it. Another source says he just stepped on it. Either way, this crab provided a grand total of zero help to the Hydra, and seriously, might as well not have been there in the first place. But it was. It helped, air quotes, apparently, and so when the crab was killed by Heracles with ease and absolutely no fanfare, Hera places it in the sky as the constellation Cancer, in thanks for its so-called service. And anyway, that's the whole story of Cancer, and if you think about it, it was really more the story of the Hydra than anything else. So for all you Cancers out there, I'm sorry, but I'm one of you, and it's really Hera's fault anyway. Back to our girl Hera, the one who's causing all this because she's chosen Heracles as the child of Zeus she will put all her effort into destroying. He's had so, so, so many children with women that aren't her. But a smart woman prioritizes and realizes she can't get rid of them all, so she chooses him. And boy, does she make it fucking hard to be Heracles. She didn't get like this without a little help from Zeus, though. Hera is the goddess of marriage. She's the protector of marriage, and specifically married women. She's the daughter of Rhea and Kronos, sister to Zeus. When they're old enough, Zeus starts hitting on his sister, trying to convince her to be with him. We're meant to treat this as not super gross, because all the gods did it, but... And is it hard to not make it super gross? He's sometimes even described as her twin. I mean, ugh. Hera originally wasn't having it. She just wasn't attracted to him, didn't want to marry her brother. The details aren't clear, but Hera was rejecting Zeus's advances. So one day, instead of appearing as his usual Zeus form to hit on her, he appears as a really sad-looking cuckoo bird. She doesn't know this bedraggled-looking bird is her brother Zeus in disguise, so she holds it close to her chest, trying to comfort it. And when she does... Zeus transforms himself back into himself, and he rapes her. Because, yeah, God, Zeus is protectable. In this telling, it's this rape that shames Hera into marrying Zeus in the first place. And with that beautiful, romantic beginning to their relationship, one of the most toxic and terrifying marriages in all mythology ever is born. Before Hera sent the Hydra and that sad giant crab to destroy Heracles for her, she influenced Eurystheus to send the hero to kill another beast. The first labor of Heracles is to kill the Nimean lion. A lion has been terrorizing the region of Nemea, for who knows how long. And so when Heracles shows up to Eurystheus' house to be purified, that's the first job he's given. Get rid of that fucking lion that keeps eating all the people. But this is no ordinary lion. Just like the Hydra, it's a child of Typhon and Echidna, making it more of a mythological monster than those lions always singing about feeling the love on a given night. But similarly to the story of the crab of cancer, Heracles shows up to kill this lion, and its whole thing is that no weapon can pierce its skin, so everyone's all, my god, how do we kill it? But Heracles just rolls up and is all, guys, I mean, isn't it obvious? And he strangles it and then Hera puts it in the sky as the constellation Leo. Okay, no, for real, there are sources showing Heracles tries a little harder than that. When he arrives to kill the lion, he first tries to shoot it with arrows before discovering what I mentioned. Arrows would do absolutely nothing to harm this monster. So he comes up with an alternative plan. He chases the lion with his club, a Heracles staple, before the lion runs into its cave. There, he corners it and manages to get an arm around its neck, strangling the Nimean lion and bringing its body back to Eurystheus as proof. After this, Heracles wears a lion skin wrapped around his shoulders like a preppy white guy at a country club. It makes it fairly easy to recognize Heracles in ancient Greek sculptures and pottery. He's always the dude with the club and the lion skin. After Zeus rapes his sister, essentially forcing her to marry him, they throw a wedding party. And of course... All the gods attend the wedding of Zeus and Hera. He's the king of the gods, the one who wields all the power, even if he's proven to be the one who should have none of it. Even Gaia attends their wedding, and Mother Earth herself gives Hera golden apples, which Hera entrusts to the Hesperides, who guard them in their garden. One of these apples is later taken by Eris and tossed into another godly wedding, that of Peleus and Thetis, which of course sparks the Trojan War. It's always kind of up in the air as to who are Hera's children, and with whom. Hephaestus is always hers, though sometimes he's Zeus's son, sometimes Talos's son, a nephew of Daedalus, and sometimes he's her parthenogenous child. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but it means Hera alone is his parent. Apparently Hephaestus wouldn't believe this, either. So one time he imprisoned Hera in a freakish mechanical chair that locked her arms to the seats and wouldn't let her go until she swore on the river Styx that he was indeed her son and only her son. So you know, he's chill. The other three children usually described as being the true children of Zeus and Hera are Ares, god of war, Hebe, a goddess who has control over eternal youth, She was the cupbearer to the gods on Olympus before she eventually marries Heracles and Zeus's sex slave Ganymede takes over the job. And Ilithia, goddess of childbirth. Hera, sadly, has very few stories of her own. Much of what we know about her is through the lens of her fury and anger at Zeus and the woman he fucked. But there is suggestion that originally, Hera was a mother goddess in the Greek region before the Hellenic religion of worshipping Zeus and the Olympians took over at which time she became the lesser wife of the king of the gods, rather than the main goddess she once was. This conversion from the original matriarchy of the region to the patriarchy that went on to dominate, I would imagine, is when she would have transformed into this angry, vindictive woman who punished other women. Mini-Myth, Zodiac Constellations. Astraea, the Virgin, and her Scales. Virgo and Libra. The constellation Virgo is most often associated with a woman named Astraea. Some say she's a titan, others a goddess, but by all accounts, she's immortal. Sometimes the daughter of Zeus and Themis, the titan associated with law and order. Other times the daughter of Eos, goddess of the dawn, and Astraeus, titan of the dusk. Based on that interpretation, it seems to me that Estrella was always meant to be in the stars. What else could you be if your mother was the dawn and your father the dusk? In all versions, though, Estrella is a goddess of justice. There seems to be more than one goddess of justice. Her mother, Themis, while a titan, is the most famous. She's more law and order, though, sort of that more lawyerly concept, maybe. And there's yet another who astrea is closely associated with her name is dk and from what i can understand she is a goddess who came later in ancient greece's mythology of course because these gods and goddesses and the concept they were associated with developed as a society as greece was developing as a society evolving and growing all that so did those gods and goddesses so sometimes it's kind of hard to track The Greeks changed immensely, over hundreds of years, so it would only make sense that the people they worshipped would change and evolve too. One source, though, just says that Dike is another name for Astraea, and they're the same, or it's a later goddess of justice, or who the hell knows? This is a magnificent instance of just how convoluted and confusing Greek mythology can be. By most accounts, though, Astraea's story comes from the golden age of humans. Many of the ancient Greeks who wrote about these things, and Romans too, discuss various so-called ages. Depending on who you're reading, these could be phases in humanity, or they could include different types of people altogether. Giants, or people made of gold, there are many variations, but the through line is the concept of these ages itself. These times of humanity when it was better or worse than others. More impressive, more innovative, when humans were pure and good, or otherwise. I think we can safely say that we're now in the age of, I don't know, sludge or something. We're innovative, sure, but at what cost? But I'm not here to tell you about how unchecked capitalism is going to be the end of us, no. This is about Virgo. Astraea spends most of her time on Earth during this golden age, this height of humanity. According to the mythology, it's when humans were at their absolute best, their purest, their least violent, just all the good things. And though she's a goddess of justice, there's little for her to do because this world is so good. She hangs out with the people, suggesting things when necessary. Maybe don't punish that guy quite as harshly, she might suggest. She enjoys herself. It's a good time hanging out with these humans who didn't do much wrong. But the Golden Age can't last forever, and people begin slowly evolving. Next is the Silver Age, where things aren't quite as good, but also not quite as bad as they're going to get. Estrella, during this age, spends less time with the humans. She gets herself a place farther out of town, where she can avoid them a little bit more easily. But she still pays attention. She provides guidance when it comes to these justice-related matters, whenever they need it, but she's less invested. But like I said, even this age can't last forever. After a while, the humans once more begin evolving, this time into what we know now. People who start wars, take over land by force, who commit murders and other crimes. This is what the Greeks called the Bronze Age, the Age of Weapons. Lawlessness reigns, and Astraea isn't having it. She doesn't, though... Try to change it? I don't know if she finds it fruitless, or she's just too fed up. Either way, she simply leaves. The goddess flies up into the sky, where Zeus installs her as the constellation Virgo, the Virgin. I guess she never got any down on Earth, and as a result, the name of the constellation is the Virgin. Seems to me it would make more sense to name it something about her as a person. You know, she had a personality. But are we surprised... According to Ovid, Astraea is the last immortal to leave Earth. Before the Bronze Age, he says the immortals associated with humans far more often, even living among them. But slowly, immortals began to leave, finding other places to live, whether Olympus or otherwise, just away from those pesky and difficult humans. Until finally, it was only Astraea left. Even she, this concept of justice couldn't manage living through the Bronze Age. As for the constellation Libra, I'm sorry to say that it may have even less of a story than Virgo, though at least it does have a couple of options. According to many, Libra is the scales, those scales held by Virgo, by Astraea. They're the scales of justice, and so very much associated with her. The scales held by Astraea are similar to what we know now as being held by this Lady Justice concept, the woman with the blindfold. She's often associated with Themis, but Themis didn't have the blindfold. Or really, the scales? I'm unsure. According to this version, the scales were placed in the sky alongside Astraea as this constellation Libra. That's certainly what we know of now, what we consider Libra to be. But the constellation has also been determined not to be a set of scales, but instead, claws. Yes, claws. Of course, today Libra is very much a set of scales, like I said, but in this ancient world, they weren't so sure. According to my edition of Eratosthenes and Hyginus's constellation myths, the scales were originally the claws of the scorpion of Scorpio. They explain that the constellation of Scorpio was so big that it was divided into two constellations, Scorpio and its claws, Libra. Suppose the scales might also resemble Scorpion's claws, or it's just that stretch, you know, when you look at a picture of a constellation and what they believe it looked like, and it's like, that's four stars, and then you just drew a person over top. These guys note that the claws have come to be known as the scales now. So perhaps it's that it's originally they were a scorpion's claws, and then once they determined that the other constellation next to it was Virgo, it made sense to associate those stars with her set of scales? Is it either? Is it both? It's hard to say what any old ancient Greek person believed, but I do like that this one constellation can be seen as things as vastly different as a set of scales or a set of claws. Really just emphasizes how much they made up for fun. Staring up at the stars, thinking, hmm, what vague thing could we decide that those looked like? What insane myth could that have come from? Who got put up into the stars, and by whom? Hmm... Thank you all so much for listening. Um, I'm sorry it wasn't a new episode, but like I said, I got to keep myself a little bit sane. Next week, however, there will be a very special episode. I sat down with the incredible woman behind the Queer Classicist blog and Twitter account, Yentl. We had a fascinating conversation about Dionysus and all of his queerness. So stay tuned because that episode will come out next week and I am so excited for you all to hear it. Thank you so much. I am Liv and I love this shit.
1: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee.
4: Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.